Now today I want to remind everybody where we left off last time. We never finished off our message. Remember we were talking about the 144,000 and how they stood with the Lamb. And we said that it was a proleptic look, a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom. That one day Christ will reign with his people. And the 144,000, if you remember, were called a first fruits, meaning that they are the first portion of God's people, but they represent the larger group as well. Um, in this slide that I have on the screen before you here, we had talked about the fact that these 144,000 were not defiled with women. And do you recall that we had to wrestle with that because we had to take it seriously that they were abstinent? But on the other hand, notice the First Timothy 4 passage and notice the underline that those who forbid marriage are actually teaching a doctrine of demons. The doctrine of demons is listed in 1 Timothy 4.1. So we know that if anyone would say that you cannot marry, that's a doctrine of demons. That's not prohibited. However, we see the Apostle Paul make it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that marriage certainly is not sin, but it is also, if one can receive it, a blessed thing to remain single for the sake of the kingdom. He said, for the time has been shortened. And Jesus affirms that very thing. So I think the way to put it together is the 144,000, although they wouldn't be sinning if they had wives, they remain abstinent because, in fact, they're not just waiting for the time to come, the 70th week of Daniel. They're in that time. And so they're being used by God in a special way. So, again, we, we want to make sure marriage is never something that's prohibited in the New Testament. It's a wonderful thing. If someone engages in the institution of marriage, you are not sinning before God. It is a covenant, certainly, that God recognizes. Now, the other thing I want to point out, though, before we leave this, is notice these 144,000. According, according to Revelation 14.5, notice in the red it says there was no lie found in their mouth. Now, right there we can get the idea that these guys were super spiritual. They must have been really something. But what's very interesting is not having a lie found in one's mouth is ultimately only something that the Messiah can give. In other words, this is a result of Christ's work by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of human works. And what's very interesting is we see in Scripture that the mouth that we have, our lips really reveal what's in our heart. And what I'm going to do is show you that ultimately the only way that any of us can have clean lips before God, which really symbolizes a clean heart, is to be with Jesus. And so we have to make that connection in our mind that these men weren't just super spiritual, better than anyone else. They were with Christ. And because they were with him, they were regarded as those who had clean lips. Now, let me make the case for you. I want to bring you back to the book of Isaiah. Because in the book of Isaiah, having clean lips is a very important thing. Remember when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is commissioned? The question was, who will go? He says, send me, O Lord, send me, right? Well, remember in Isaiah 6, he sees this vision of Yahweh high and exalted. And remember, he cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Hebrew uses holy, holy, holy three times to show that God is the superlative one. That is, his holiness is not exceeded by anyone. It exceeds all others. Okay? Well, what's very interesting is in Isaiah 6, 5, notice when Isaiah sees the Lord, he doesn't just run up to him and give him a handshake like it's an old lost friend. But instead, listen to his response as a fallen man. He 
He says, Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here Isaiah recognizes that he's not fit to be in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Why? Because he has unclean lips. Now remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, and I'll also show you this later in Mark 7. In fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew 12, 34. He talked about how the mouth speaks forth from what's in the heart. So think of your mouth as a release valve for what's actually in the heart. And this is what Jesus proclaims here in Matthew 12, 34. Listen to what he says to his Jewish audience here. Matthew 12, 34, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Does everyone see that? So here the mouth reveals what's actually in the heart. So when Isaiah cries out that he's a man of unclean lips, it's not just his lips or his mouth that's unclean. It really reveals that he's a man who has a sinful heart. And so he notices at this point that he cannot be in the presence of God. Now, all the way through Isaiah, what you see is Israel is plagued with being a people who have unclean lips, meaning an unclean heart, and they trust in other pagans who have lying lips as well. Let me show you an example of this. Isaiah twenty-eight fifteen. Notice Yahweh here is rebuking Israel for trusting in Egypt for protection against Assyria rather than trusting in him. Isaiah 28, 15, it says, Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. Now stop there. What's this covenant with Sheol? Well, the Assyrians back in Ahaz's day, this is during around 715 B.C., they were threatening Israel with extinction. They're going to wipe out Judah. And yet, instead of trusting in Yahweh, because he always promised to protect his people, what does Ahaz do? He makes an alliance with Egypt. And so God regards this as a covenant, not with life, but with death, with Sheol. It's not going to bring life to trust in pagans rather than Yahweh. It's going to bring about death. And so notice he says, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us. This is the claim of the Israelites. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made a falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. So deceived were the Israelites, so wayward was their heart. Not only did they have unclean lips, but they would rather trust in the lying lips of an Egyptian pharaoh rather than the truthful lips of Yahweh. Think about how vile that is. Yahweh says, if you come to me, I'll protect you. Has he ever not fulfilled his word? Is he not the God who cannot lie? All of his promises are true and amen. And yet they wouldn't trust in him. They would trust in the lying lips of a pagan king. That's how deceitful and wicked the Israelites are, and by definition, every other person. In fact, this type of wickedness results not just in trusting others who have lying lips, but they engaged in lying themselves. Notice Isaiah 59, 12 through 3. It says, for our, our transgressions. Now, here Isaiah is just acknowledging what the Israelites are. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, that's of course before God, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying Yahweh and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, 
conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Okay, so notice what comes from the heart are these lying words. In fact, Jesus taught that very concept in Mark chapter 7. Remember, you have these religious leaders in Mark 7 who say, you're good before God if you do some outward thing, if you wash your hands before you eat. And Jesus tells them, I'm paraphrasing the whole section, he says, that won't do any good. Because the problem comes from within. It's from the heart that people end up sinning. And so the lips here, the lying words that come out of the lips of the Israelites, reveal their wicked heart. Now, what's very interesting is I want you to see the contrast between Israel, Isaiah 59, they have lying words in their mouth, and the Messiah. Notice the Messiah, Isaiah 53, 9. It says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death. Now stop there. Remember, he's a, when Jesus dies, he certainly is going to go to burial. But who is he buried with? He's buried with the wealthy, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's a sign of exaltation right there. You see, even to the Jews, it was exaltation to be buried with the wealthy. So here's what you have to think. As soon as Jesus dies, that's it. Even his burial is a form of exaltation. He's with the wealthy. And that's shocking because here he seems to be a scourge. Isaiah 53, he's taking upon himself the sins of the world. And from there, he's going to be raised from the dead. Further exaltation. And from there, he ascends on high. Further exaltation. And from there, he's coming again and he's going to rule over the heavens and the earth. So the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, it's finished. And from then on, it's all exaltation. Now, continue on. Notice it says, the reason he's buried with the rich man, it says, because he had done no violence. So you sense the idea of reward. He says, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Stop there. There was no deceit in his mouth? Well, notice up in Isaiah 59, 13, there were certainly lying words in the mouths of all Israelites. Now, you might be saying, well, who cares? Here's why it's, it matters. If you talk about Isaiah 53 with some Jewish scholar today, they'll say, well, that suffering servant is Israel. And what is your comeback to that? Oh, no, that suffering servant in Isaiah 53 cannot be Israel, for Israel had mouths that uttered lying words. So who is this one that had no deceit in his mouth? He certainly wasn't just any Israelite. He's the God-man. He's the Messiah. That, that's who is being referred to here. And so, by the way, Bob and I had a wonderful opportunity. In fact, maybe you can recall the story. Remember that lovely woman that we had the opportunity to witness to using Isaiah 53? It was from somebody you had met while you were in the hospital, and she was going to, uh, she was kind of wrestling with knowing whether the Bible was true, and we were able to use Isaiah 53. She wasn't a Christian. Exactly, right. She wasn't a Christian. Okay, now I remember. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a Christian nurse that I had back when I was really sick. And uh, she saw me doing all my work, and I had the Greek, and I'm, I was always studying when I'm sitting there. Uh, if you can't do anything else, write a sermon. <laughs> so she said, oh, you know all this stuff? Yeah, I said, well, I'm a preacher and whatever. She says, well, I have a friend that I've been witnessing to for years who is anti-Christian, kind of an agnostic, and was publishing things fighting Christians. And could you help me answer her questions? Because 
she tries to cast doubt yeah. on the claims of Christ. So I started doing that, and so then she had more questions. So I asked Eric if he'd help. Yeah. And so we went, every objection that she had, we'd yeah. just patiently give answers, including Isaiah 53 yeah. and so on. <clears throat> well, a while later, this is when I was getting all those blood transfusions. Right. I got that nurse again, and she said, thank you, thank you. My friend became a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? And Yeah. But what God used was the truth and evidence that these things are true. Amen. See, we wrongly think if people just have an emotional experience. Exactly. <clears throat> to become a Christian. Right. But no, we need to be giving reasons for the hope that's within us. And Isaiah that's 53 powerful. does point Amen. to the deity of Christ. Amen. And there is evidence for the resurrection. So the facts are on our side. That's Don't right. retreat. Give them. Amen. Thank you, Bob. That's exactly so, right. There was a conversion. That's right. All from Scripture. Yes. On occasion, I brought up Isaiah 53 with some Jewish people when yeah. I'm delivering mail. And uh, I'm wondering, and, and I had never, I mean, that, that's a great rebuttal yeah. that, that I had not seen before. But now I'm wondering, this rebuttal has had to come before the rabbis before. So what is their rebuttal to that rebuttal? Ignore it. Okay. <laughs> it really is. Um, they just don't like it. Yeah. Um, if, and, and there are some, though, as this gal admitted. It, what's interesting is when you talk about the suffering servant, the arm of Yahweh, he's called many different things. When you unpack who he is, what he does, he so far exceeds the suffering servant Israel. And by the way, I'm not denying that Israel wasn't to be a servant of Yahweh. That's certainly true. But the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 far exceeds their expectations, their abilities. And that's what we can rightly point out from the text to say, well, every Israelite, including Isaiah the prophet, was a man of unclean lips who had lying words. That's not the case with this suffering one. Who could it possibly be? Well, obviously, it's Messiah. So, yeah, it's a very powerful rebuttal. And like Bob was saying, the evidence is on our side. We just need to get it out there. And that's part of the 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within him with gentleness and respect. And that's what we're trying to do. So, yeah. So here's my conclusion. I want to wrap it up and move on to our next section. Here's what I want you to think about. The 144,000 are those who are regarded with clean lips. There's no lie upon their lips. Why? Because they're with Christ. It's not because they had some superhuman ability. It's because they trusted upon the Messiah. They were united to the one who always had clean lips. And he is the one who gives the ability by the power of the Spirit to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. Dear brothers and sisters, if you want to be one who has unclean lips before God, we know that every one of us at a time in our life have not had clean lips. And so what you need is the Messiah. You need to be with him. And if he'll represent you, you'll be regarded by God as also one who has unclean, excuse me, you'll be regarded as one who has clean lips and you'll be received in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, that's how you and I have clean lips, clean hearts. It's by being with the Messiah. And I think Isaiah is a good analogy 
and shows us that very thing. So now with that, let me switch to in my next PowerPoint. I like to, I've kind of learned my lesson in not having them all mixed up. So let me put up my, my next one here. <clears throat> this next one, we're just going to be covering two verses, but believe it or not, it'll take us the rest of the hour, I'm sure. <laughs> here we're going to be looking in verses 6 or 7. So we're, keep, we're working our way through here, Revelation 14, and we're going to be looking at the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. Believe it or not, the last proclamation of the, the gospel happens within the last seven years, the last seven-year tribulation, what we refer to as Daniel's 70th week. Now, I know that we've been going through a lot of different details in, in Revelation chapter 14. Let me remind you of where we are. Okay, let's just take a look at the forest through the trees here for a moment and remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Revelation. Remember back in Revelation 119, I'd explain that this is what we call the programmatic verse. So this is the verse that shows you the structure and the outline of the book of Revelation. Okay? So remember, Jesus here was giving these words to the apostle John. Revelation 119, it says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, that is the outline of the entire book of Revelation. This is always makes me giggle a little bit. You'll read commentary after commentary after commentary, and these scholars who get paid big money, they will wrestle with how John constructed the book. Well, you have it right here. This is it. Some people say, well, there's seven equal parts. No, there's three parts to it. And if we're careful readers, we see that. Again, the things which you have seen, those are the things recorded in Revelation 1, 1 through 20. The things which are had to do with the status of the churches in Asia Minor. Remember the seven churches? He addresses those, Revelation 2 through Revelation 3. But when you get into Revelation chapter 4, all the way to the end, the focus is on the future. And how do we know that? Because in Revelation 4, 1, you see the words come up here. This is an angel speaking to John. And he says, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so the future orientation of the book is very clear from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the very end. So as we consider that, remember in Revelation 4 through 5, you see the throne room. And remember the angst within the throne room was who was worthy to open up all of the judgments. Who was worthy? The Lamb. So all of the judgments we see that come from the Lamb. And so he is the one who's responsible not only for the prophecy, but also the judgments therein. Revelation 6, we saw the six seals. And remember, the six seal judgments are so horrific that according to the fourth seal, due to sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, the earth loses how much? A quarter of the earth's population. Well, so bad is this at the end of Revelation 6, the unregenerate even recognize this is the wrath of God. So remember where we are. We're at the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. From your perspective, it would be here. If we're looking at the 70, 70th week, the last seven years as a parenthesis, it would be at the very beginning. Okay? So at the very beginning, even the unregenerate regard this as the wrath of God. The question is, who can stand? Revelation 7 answers that question. 144,000 sealed by God. They can stand. So that's an interlude. Revelation 8 through 9, you have the seventh seal open up to the six trumpets. You have the six trumpet judgments. Now a third more of the population of the earth dies. Revelation 10 through 11, 14, you have another interlude. So do you see you have seals, interlude, trumpets, interlude? 
At this interlude, you'll see the announcement from the angel that there's no longer any delay. You also see the measuring of the temple, which shows that God's favor had returned to the people of Israel. You have the two witnesses like Elijah and Moses who proclaim God's greatness in the last three and a half years. That's part of the interlude. Then you come to the seventh trumpet. And in the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, 15 through 19, you have the proleptic reign, meaning it's a foreshadowing of the reign of Christ announced. So assured is the reign of Christ that it's spoken as if it's already occurred. Why? Because once the seventh trumpet breaks forth, it opens up to the seven bowls, and the seven bowls finish the wrath of God. Christ comes and reigns. That's why it's talked in that way. Now, this is the section we're in. Revelation 12 through 15 is a supplemental information pack for the Great Tribulation. It's John's way of saying, oh, by the way, this happened. Revelation 12, we see that uh, Satan, the dragon, has always tried to wipe out the woman Israel. And then it focuses on the specific last three and a half years, the time of Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah 30, where the Antichrist would try to wipe out the people of Israel. You get into Revelation chapter 13, you see the beast, remember, the Antichrist and his false prophet, their career. You get to Revelation 14 that we're in. God says, hey, that's not the end of the story. I'm also going to have a people that will serve me rather than Antichrist, and they're going to reign. That's where we are now. Revelation 15 will be a rejoicing and a song in the heavenly realm because of God's reign. You get back to Revelation 16, you get back to the judgments. The interlude's over. All seven bowls are poured out. What does it lead to? It leads to the destruction of Babylon. Revelation 17 through 18. Revelation 19, Jesus returns in power at the battle of Armageddon, wipes out all of the enemies that surround Jerusalem. He returns in glory, sets up his millennial kingdom, judges his enemies, and he reigns for a thousand years. The white throne judgment comes, and after that, the eternal states, new heaven, new Jerusalem, and he reigns forever with his people, and we're all going to be in our resurrected bodies. That's a pretty good program, isn't it? Okay, so where we are now in the big scheme of things is in this section where we're given a supplemental. We're given more information prior to the breaking out of the last of God's wrath. Are you with me? So what we're going to see today is that John is going to remind us that even during the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the seven, there's going to be a proclamation of the gospel by an angel. So does God love that he's willing to proclaim the gospel through an angel so that all will have an opportunity to repent and believe. And that's what we see here then. Revelation 14, verse 6. John describes this. He says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, dear ones, notice here, he says that he saw another angel. Now, the term another, here it's alos. Alos means another of the same kind. Okay, that's typically how alos is used. Now, there was another choice that John could have used, which would have been heteros. Heteros also could be rendered another, but that's another of a different kind. So what John is clearly showing us is that this is another angel like the other angels. Now, what angels is he referring to? Well, turn your Bibles back to the beginning of this section, which is Revelation 12, and particularly verse 7, and I'll show you what I think he's alluding to. Revelation 12, 7. 
Remember in Revelation 12, John begins to focus on the activity within the last three and a half years. That is the Great Tribulation. So the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, there in Revelation 12, 7, it says, and there was war in heaven. So there's going to be a cosmic war between the angels during this last three and a half year period. Michael, which is the archangel, and his angels waging war with the dragon, that's Satan. The dragon and his angels waged war. So notice the reference to the angels. When it says another angel, this is in reference to those angels. So this is a different one, but of the same kind. That's the idea. So he says, and I saw another angel again flying in midheaven. Now, notice where this angel is. He's flying in midheaven. And as you and I read that, we can say, ah, that's simply in the middle of the air. And that's a very good understanding. He's flying in the middle of the air so that everyone could see them. But I want you to remember that there is evidence as we read our scriptures that to the Jews, they had a three heaven scheme. Okay, now what am I talking about? Well, turn your Bibles very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is a passage that came to my mind as I was reading this angel flying in mid-heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The reason I'm turning your attention there is remember John was caught up to the third heaven. And I just want to wrestle with how they understood heaven in relationship uh, to the earth, etc. Revelation 12, 2. Paul says this. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now, notice the term caught up. That's our term harpazo. Yeah, Bob. You said Revelation 12.2. Oh, I'm, excuse me. 2 Corinthians 12.2. Thank you. 2 Corinthians 12.2. Does everyone see the term caught up to the third heaven? The term caught up there is harpazo. That's the same term that we use or we see in First Thessalonians 4.13 for the rapture, for 13 through 17. Okay, so he's caught up. By the way, the significance of that is this isn't something that the Apostle Paul did by his own power. Okay, he didn't choose to go. He didn't try to go. This is completely of God's doing. It's a divine passive. God brought him up there. So he's caught up to this third heaven. And what's very interesting is there's a scholar named Garland. Listen to what he says about the third heaven. He says, quote, A three heaven scheme is the most well-established view in Jewish writings. And the third heaven would therefore be recognized as the highest. So in the Jewish understanding, the lowest heaven would be where the birds fly. Mid-heaven would be space, as it were, orbit. And then the highest heaven was where the throne of God. Now, as we talk about the highest heaven, don't think that the Jews thought that somehow up past Jupiter, God must be there. Because we see evidence even in 2 Kings 6 that, in fact, remember Elisha? Elisha is with his helper, and the Arameans surround this little town called Dothan. And Elisha is very confident that the Lord is going to deliver him, but Elisha's helper isn't. Well, remember, Elisha says, Lord, reveal, pull back the veil, so to speak, open his eyes. And then all of a sudden, the helper sees all of the angelic realm. They're, in a, they're there. Now, normally we can't see them, but there's a sphere that exists that you and I can't see that the angelic realm partakes in. Uh, in fact, let me just read it to you. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. 
And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So here's my point. I don't think that you and I can say, oh, the third heaven, you just keep going up and eventually you get there. I don't think the Jews understood it that way. But the third heaven was always regarded as the abode of God. Okay? But I think we have to see it as another dimension. It is a location, but a location that isn't necessarily uh, predicated on just going higher. It's another dimension. Okay? But the third heaven is always regarded as the abode of God. Mid-heaven here would certainly indicate that this angel can be seen by the whole world. And so the reason he cries out with a loud voice, as you'll see in the next slide, is so that all can hear. So this is really going to happen. There's going to be an angel. Think about that light show. I get excited when I can see when I can see a satellite on a clear night. I get all excited about that. Can you imagine seeing an angel go across the heavens? Okay, so what's his message? Well, it says he has an eternal gospel. Now, the term euangelion here, it's the only other, there's only one other time in all of the New Testament that this term is used in what's called an anarthrous way. Now, what does anarthrous mean? It means it doesn't have the definite article, okay? The only other time it doesn't have the definite article before euangelion is Romans 1.1, where Paul declares that he's an apostle of the gospel of God, okay? Now, being that this gospel term is anarthrous, and again, it doesn't have the definite article in front of it in Greek, some scholars would claim that this is just a generic message. It's not the proclamation of good news. However, notice the phrase eternal gospel mitigates against that. The reason why is this isn't just any message. This is the eternal message. Eternal designates that this is the message or the good news that God has had from the very beginning. So I would take this as the gospel, the good news of salvation that God gives through his son. Okay, that's how I would understand this section. Now, notice this eternal gospel is to be preached to those who live on the earth. And notice in red, it says to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This should remind us, if we're careful readers of scripture, of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus promised this very thing within the last seven years of Daniel. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now stop there. This, to me, the Matthew 24, 14, has been notoriously misinterpreted. Certainly we as individual human beings have a responsibility to go proclaim the gospel in light of the fact that Jesus commands us to do so in Matthew 28 to fulfill the Great Commission. But remember the context of Matthew 24 isn't about the church age, it's about the last seven years. So open your Bibles again to the Olivet Discourse. Let's see the connection. Because if we see the connection between the Olivet Discourse and Revelation, we're going to understand eschatology. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24. Let's begin in verse 4. And I just want to show you again how we should understand Jesus' words here and relate it to Revelation. So Matthew 24, 4, remember the scene. Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives. They ask two questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? He begins by answering the second question first. What are the signs? But all of the signs are not signs during the church age that you and I are living now but they're signs within the last 70th week. Let's go through it. Matthew 24, 4. It says, Jesus answered them, 
See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Stop there. The very first seal in Revelation chapter 6, we see the unveiling of the Antichrist. But remember, we're going to learn this in Revelation 17. The Antichrist comes with other false Christs. He has a coalition with him. Okay, so that's fulfilled at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Verse 5, for many will come in my name. I am the Christ, will lead many astray. Verse 6, he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now stop there. Notice the reference to wars, rumors and wars and famines. All of those happen within the first four seals in Revelation 6. So bad is it, the sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts at the fourth seal in Revelation 6 that we lose a quarter of the earth's population. And yet this is just the beginning of birth pains. Remember that technical term, Odin, birth pains? Remember who else uses it? The Apostle Paul, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like birth pains. So the day of the Lord comes like birth pains. He's describing the day of the Lord. You see that? That's what Jesus is describing. He's not describing the church age that we're living in now. Why do you think they were saying peace and safety? Exactly because they had it. <laughs> That's right. Very good point. The reason why they're saying peace and safety is this is something that they had, but it's certainly they don't have it within the last seven years. Right. And now in the 70th week... You can't be saying Supposedly, wars aren't going to happen, right? Right. Because all those Christians are gone. Right. Yeah. And all the troublemakers. Yeah, all the troublemakers are gone. And now, remember, in our worldview, we talked about the boundaries. Yes, it's gone. The boundaries are all erased. There you go. See, I've wondered about this for years. Because we've had wars and rumors of wars. Yeah. Throughout history. And when I was teaching Matthew... Years ago, I don't. I don't know. I don't get this. Why is that a big deal? Here's why I think. Yeah. And you all can correct me. Um, with this removal of the boundaries and the establishment of one world, there's no good reason for a war. Right. Because supposedly, there's nothing to fight over. We're all on one page. <laughs> right. Right? It's the Marxist dream, right? Yeah, the Marxist dream is now true. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, it doesn't solve the problem. Greater war comes. Yeah, the, the same tribalism is still going on yeah. in the hearts of people. And the removal of the boundaries turns out to be removal of restraint. Yes. And it even gets worse. And so that's what's so remarkable. Yeah, amen. How can you have wars and... Rumors of wars when you got one world. Exactly. Well said. Very good. Thank you, Bob. That's right, so, my idea. No, very good. Yeah, Brian. That's a, a great point, Bob. I, in a, any given week, I listen to a lot of different pastors and teachers sure. and things like that. And I would say that less than 10% would understand the fact that he's answering the first question or the second question first that's right and it skews the church's uh, eschatology it does and it, it puts them in a, a, a 
in a place that they, they just don't understand. Because you'll always hear speakers at conferences and whatnot, they're always saying, well, the end times must be near. Look at all the wars. Look at all the hurricanes. Look at all this and that. And they, they, they just don't understand. that. The, the, you always used to draw that graph or that the, the, yes. the, the, line, the bar line, and then you'd have the rapture, and then everything of this falls Amen. Thank you. And if anyone's interested why we know that this is the better understanding of the Olivet Discourse, as I gave a message on interpreting the Olivet Discourse when we were in the book of Mark, and you can look that up on our internet um, at gospelofgracefellowship.org. Oh, I'm sorry. I told somebody the other day the wrong one then. Uh Uh-oh. I was just pulled up. Anyway, but what does it say it again? ggf.church. Oh, okay, thank you. You can pull it up there, and you can see the Olivet Discourse, and it'll be all laid out for you, Mark chapter 13. But let's keep reading. I'll show you why this is a better reading. Notice here, now the great tribulation begins in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Well, when does the la- when's the worst period for the Jews? The great tribulation, the last three and a half years. So now they're going to be persecuted. Antichrist breaks his covenant. The Antichrist, according to Daniel 7, Daniel 9, is going to wear down the saints. That's happening now. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations. Notice up above, up above in Matthew 24, verse 4. Oh, excuse me, verse 6. Notice he says, see that you are not alarmed. Okay, well, they're not to be alarmed because for the first three and a half years, they have protection. The Antichrist has not broken his covenant yet. But notice now down in verse 9, now is the time to be alarmed. Then they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because the lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, the end of what? The end of Daniel's 70th week will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So what are we reading about here in Revelation 14? We're reading about that proclamation of the gospel that occurs at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Now, one more proof item. Notice in Matthew 24, 15, what does Jesus do? He does by way of recapitulation. He's brought you through the entire Daniel's 70th week Now he goes back to the midpoint, and he gives a therefore. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the midpoint. Why is that significant? Because that shows that the whole message here is linked to Daniel's 70th week, because that's what Daniel 9.27 taught. That's how we know that's what he's referring to. Okay, where are we in church history? We're after the 69th week prior to the 70th week. So we're not in this time period. So here's what's so revolutionary. When you and I are reading Revelation 14, 6, we say, hey, the gospel is being proclaimed even by an angel that's going to be going across the sky so that all the nations can see. That's a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 24, 14, at the very end of the 70th week of Daniel. Yeah, Paul. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we got one here. Brian's coming. It's a lame walk. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
I, I was just looking at uh, Luke uh, 21, uh, verse 8, which is approximately the same stuff we're sure. talking about now. Yeah. And it says, watch out that you're not deceived. And how is it that we would not be deceived in this temporal world? How would we know the fake from the real, but to know the, the gold standard of the eternal gospel? Amen. Amen. Well said. That's right. And one way that we will not be deceived is when people say, here's the Christ or there's the Christ. Trust me, when Christ comes, you'll know it. <laughs> uh, we don't have to conjure him up. Remember what was the problem in 1 John? The, the issue was that everyone who does not confess that the Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. Well, that's the test for his first advent. Anyone who says that Messiah has not come in the flesh is not from God. Well, in the same way, the second advent, we have the same test. He comes bodily. It's the Lord himself who descends. So we're not going to be deceived by some Christ consciousness. When Christ returns, he comes in power and in glory, and he's coming physically for his people, so we can't miss it. So it's not us looking for him. It's him looking for us, and he's not going to miss you. <laughs> You're going to be caught up in the air to meet with him in the air. Yeah. So you can't miss, so nobody's going to be deceived or should be deceived. Okay, now let's keep moving on for the sake of time. We see in verse 7, here's the content of the gospel. It says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Now, dear ones, notice the content of the gospel here. It's a little unusual for us. We think of the idea of, faith and repentance but i want you to see that these terms are in some sense synonymous just used on a grander scale the term fear for example implies faith in fact the great scholar robert thomas he says fear is quote the inner state of those who believe unquote in other words fear is something that believers have within them it implies a humbling and a bowing of the knee at the end of the day, you will trust and serve the one you fear. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy what both body and soul and hell. So every single person is ultimately going to fear either God or something in creation. And if you're afraid of something in creation, you will end up serving that. You'll end up trying to remedy that. But Jesus says, don't fear that. You're to fear him, the creator. Okay, so fear implies a faith. It is the inner disposition of those who believe. Think about Ecclesiastes 12. Remember Solomon? Solomon did every single thing that a man could do in his era. And he always used the phrase, under the sun. He did it all. If there was a camel, he wrote it. If there was a book, he read it. He did it all. And do you remember the conclusion that he comes to at the end of Ecclesiastes? He even says, he says to sum it up, he says, this is what I've learned. Fear God and keep his commandments. He says, because this applies to every man. Now, why does he say fear God? Because you trust in the one that you fear. If you and I really believe God's word, that he is the judge, and that one day his wrath will come, we should fear him. And so this idea of fearing is in direct contrast to the fearing that the world has for the Antichrist. You see, he's commanding fear of God, but the world at this time is going to be fearing the Antichrist and the dragon. And so there's a clear choice. Who will we fear? Um, One of the 
debates that I've been involved with over the years is a debate between the pre-wrath and the pre-trib positions in eschatology. And one of the rebuttals against our position is if you believe in the pre-trib rapture, the claim goes that we're not preparing people to meet Antichrist. And so therefore you could be deceived. But let me ask the question, should you be prepared to meet Christ or Antichrist? Who should you fear? Are we to fear Antichrist? Well, here we're shown that we're to fear God. Jesus says, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So my rebuttal would be, we have to prepare people to meet Christ, not Antichrist. Yeah, Brian. I'd like to relate what you just said to your sermon from last week in Romans 6, okay. 17 and 18. Sure. With the slave. You're, you can only be a slave to one. We're either a slave to here or to Christ. Brian. And either way, you're going to... Don't put the mic up here. Oh, I'm here. sorry. So either way, you're going to be a slave. Right. And uh, it's almost the same thing. The, Amen. This, yeah. Well said. Exactly right. Um, and to tie into that, that's the idea of giving him glory. You give glory to the one that you serve. The idea of glory in Hebrew, kavoth, and in Greek, doxa, means to give weightiness. You, you give weightiness to the one that you serve. So we all know, I always think of the imagery of World War II, if General Patton came into a compound and everybody stands to attention, there was a weightiness to him. He was a core commander of the Third Army, an army commander, right? That's power. Okay, so when he comes into a building, everyone snaps too. There's a weightiness given to this three- or four-star general. But think about how much weightier Christ is. Okay, so that's the idea of giving God glory. He deserves all the weightiness that the creation can muster. Now, what I want you to see is that giving glory to God is often seen as being synonymous with repentance. If someone repents, they're giving glory to God. Turn your Bibles. Let me show you where you find such ideas. Turn your Bibles to Acts 11.18. Bob will be getting to this as we proceed through our study in Acts. Acts 11.18. Turn there, please, if you will. And here we're going to see Peter's report to Jerusalem, how God received through the gospel the Gentiles. Acts 11.18. So Peter gives his report that the Gentiles have been included and listen to the response by the Jews who are believers in Christ in Jerusalem. It says, quote, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to light. So notice what does repentance lead to? It leads to God being glorified. Okay, so when it says fear God and give him glory, implied is that someone would repent. Turn your Bibles ahead to Acts 13, 48. Let me show you another occurrence of this. I'll show you two more. Acts 13, 48. Preaching, I believe, if I remember, at Antioch, Pisidia. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Notice they were glorifying the word. When did they glorify the word? When they believed. Okay, so the idea of giving glory to God, certainly God is going to be glorified by those whom he judges. We're going to learn this in Romans 9. But typically the idea of glorifying his word or glorifying God is tied to repentance and saving faith. One more example. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3.1. I'll leave you with this one and we'll move on. 
2 Thessalonians 3, 1. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, notice Paul says here, he says, Finally, brethren, he's speaking to those at Thessalonica, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. So, if he says, just as it was with you, well, the, those at Thessalonica had obviously believed the word. And the idea of believing the word and repenting leads to what? Glory. Glorifying the word. So time and time again, we see the idea of glorifying God is synonymous oftentimes with repentance. Okay? Now, the other thing is, notice there's also the idea of worship. They also are commanded to worship God. Does everyone see that in the red? Now, let's contrast this idea of fearing God, giving Him glory and worshiping Him that all of the world is called to do with what we saw last chapter in chapter 13. Revelation 13, 3 through 4. It says, I saw one of his heads, again, this is the Antichrist, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So who does the unregenerate, the unbelieving world worship? They worship dragon, the Satan. And notice they ask the question, well, who is like the beast? Who is like the Antichrist? Who can wage war against him? And what they're really saying is that they fear him. See, they say, who is like the beast? You and I say, who is like Christ? You know, one of my favorite designations for Christ in the Bible, it's used four times, is the term archegos. It's a term that really troubles translators because it's so difficult to translate. It has to do with the idea of a leader. But it's more than just a leader. It's a it's a pathbreaker, a groundbreaker. It's a Lewis and Clark. It's a superhero. And that's why he's called the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, Jesus isn't just one who we should trust in, although that's true, but he's also the one who gives us the ability to believe. He's the groundbreaker. He's the archaic ghost. He's our superhero. He's the one we should fear. We should be the ones who say, who is like this Christ? And the day that he comes back, it's going to be evident to the entire world that there's no one like Christ. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, that's exciting. That's why the book of Revelation is so exciting, because you and I are shown the data that shows us that indeed there's no one like Christ, that no matter what the enemy is, no matter how powerful the enemy is, he has the authority to put them down. So here's the contrast. We're either going to fear God and his Messiah, or we're going to fear Satan in the false messiah it's one or the other and so that's why i think the gospel is depicted in this way now the other thing i want to point out is why should the people repent and fear and honor god and his messiah rather than the antichrist well notice he says because the hour of his judgment has come okay so you and i now are living during the church age where this hour of judgment is always depicted as being at hand Okay, but here we have a dramatic aorist. A dramatic aorist means that a state is on the verge of coming into completion or coming into effect. So remember, God's wrath begins at the very beginning of Daniel's 70th week, and it goes through the entirety. But there are stages where the wrath becomes worse and worse and worse. Well, one day, Messiah comes, and it's too late. His enemies are put under his feet. I want to show you that wrath is, in fact, part of the whole 70th week of Daniel. Turn your Bibles back 
to Revelation 6, verses 16 through 17. I wanted to show you that, again, the entirety of the last seven years is filled with wrath. The announcement here in Revelation 14 is about the culmination of that wrath. Revelation 6, verse 16 through 17. I'll start at the last part of verse 16. Notice here's the unregenerate. They cry out, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Stop there. The wrath is being poured out already. Does everyone see that? Well, when was that? Well, that was at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Why does it matter? Well, because you and I have been promised as believers in the church age to be delivered from the wrath to come. Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, etc. Okay? So, if you are promised deliverance from the wrath to come, you can't be there during that time period. You can't be here during this time period. You've been promised deliverance from the wrath. Notice, this is the unregenerate. They even get it. Verse 17, for the great day of the wrath has come. Constant of aorist. Aorist indicative normally refers to time that has come. They finally acknowledge, wow, this isn't just a bad day or a bad week in the life of the world. This is the wrath of God. And who was able to stand? And remember, the answer is the 144,000. That comes in the next chapter. There are people who actually live and believe in Christ during this time period. And they're the ones who are going to be able to stand. But notice the wrath of God then is present during the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, but it's going to culminate and it's going to get worse. And what you and I can conclude by the fact that God gives his gospel, even at the last half of the 70th week of Daniel, is that as long as a person has breath in their lungs, it's not too late to repent and believe the gospel. That's why it says, remember in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes judgment. As long as a person has breath in their lungs, it's not too late to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And God demonstrates that even at that last, last hour by sending his gospel. Now, the other thing is I want you to see because the hour of his judgment has come, I want you to remember that throughout the book of John, this time period is always depicting as, depicted as coming. So throughout the church age, we're always seeing that this hour is coming. It's coming. It's always at hand. But there's a day that it's going to come forth. Let me show you. John 5, 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Well, how can he say that the hour is coming and now is? Well, the reason he blends it's coming and now is is the hour that he's referring to is the hour of judgment but at the beginning of Christ's ministry, some do hear his voice, and they obviously do live in a spiritual sense. And in fact, in a physical sense with Lazarus, he's raised from the dead, right? John chapter 11. So, but Jesus here is blending then his first and second advent in a sense. But then just three verses later, he focuses just purely on the final advent that we're reading about in Revelation. John 5, 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, okay? So that's the idea that you and I are in the church age. The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There's going to be a resurrection and there's going to be a judgment. And so throughout the Gospels, you'll see this term, the hour is coming, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what you and I are living in. We're living in the time period where the kingdom of heaven is always at hand. Why? Because of the first advent of Christ. 
Okay, let me give you an example of this. Matthew 3, 2. Jesus says, repent for the, or this is actually John the Baptist, I think. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? Now, why does he use kingdom of heaven? Well, the Jews didn't like to use the term God too much, right? The Tetragrammaton, they couldn't even say it. They couldn't use the term Yahweh. If you go to Israel today, they won't use Yahweh. They think that that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Bob and I have disagreed with that. We've shown that actually taking the Lord's name in vain is to live in such a way where you bring disrepute and disrespect upon his glory in his name. But that's why Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven. It's respect out of the Jewish audience. Okay? But notice that the idea is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The term at hand is literally that it's near. Okay, so that you and I, as we live now during the church age, this coming kingdom is always going to be at hand. It can break forth at any time, and it is a tremendous blessing to believers, but it is a big threat to those who are unbelievers. That's why, again, we see the repeated theme throughout Matthew. Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let me just talk about the kingdom really quickly. Five facts I want you to consider about the kingdom because you'll hear all sorts of things talked about the kingdom of God. First of all, with any kingdom, you have a king. Okay, now who is the king for our kingdom? Well, it's Jesus. Now, in any kingdom, you have subjects, or I like to call participants. Who are they? They're believers in Jesus Christ. Normally, any kingdom has enemies. Who are the enemies? Well, Satan and those who line up with him. Okay, that's why they're called to fear God, not the dragon in Revelation 14. So all who are unbelievers that are lined up with Satan are enemies of the king and his kingdom. Now, the other thing that we have to realize is that the kingdom is currently being built. That's number four. And the kingdom is being built in an unperceptible way. In fact, that's the grand point to the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And in fact, Mark chapter 4, Jesus says this. He says, do you not understand this parable? He says, how will you understand all the parables? Understanding the parable of the sower to Jesus was the key parable to understand all of the parables. Why? Because through the spreading of the seed, the word, there was being built a kingdom. And so as you and I are are talking and living out our lives, there's a kingdom that's being built, but it's unperceptible. The the rest of the world can't perceive it because as Bob often says, there's no zip code to it. There's no brick and mortar to it yet. Are you with me? So the kingdom is built by people believing in Jesus Christ, believing the word. And so there's a kingdom that's being built. That leads me to the fifth thing is that there isn't a zip code to the kingdom yet. Notice I say yet. There will be. There will be because the king is going to return. He's bringing his kingdom to earth. And that shouldn't surprise us because even in the prayer that Jesus utters in Matthew 6, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays that the kingdom would come to earth. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. The angel says that they shall be, talking about believers in Christ, a priest to him, a priest to God, and they shall reign where? They'll reign upon the earth. So the kingdom is going to have a zip code one day. It's going to be on the earth, isn't it? And one day it's going to be the the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. But for now, it doesn't have a zip code. And so you can't go to a different country and become part of the kingdom 
You can't go to a different city and become part of a kingdom. You can't become part of a different family. You can't be adopted. It doesn't have to do with your race, class, gender. None of that matters. There's no slave nor free, nor Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. All that matters if you want to be part of this kingdom that's coming is to believe upon the Son, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the significance of seeing that this kingdom is at hand is that it's a threat. Revelation 14, it's being poured out, that threat, the wrath of God. But now it's at hand. And so that's why every single person should repent and believe the gospel. Now, next week what I'm going to do is I'm going to further talk about this idea of imminence because I want to show you that indeed the New Testament does teach imminence. I'm going to show you why people are confused by the doctrine of imminence. They'll say certain things are imminent when they're not, and they'll say certain things are not imminent when they in fact are. So we'll get our definition of imminence down, and we'll apply that uh, to our understanding of the scriptures here. Okay, so with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that your king and kingdom is coming, that this wrath that we're reading about in Revelation 14 and, and throughout all of Revelation is a wrath that we've been spared from, that you love people so much. We thank you, Lord, that you would give your gospel even to the very end, giving people the opportunity to repent and believe in your son. We thank you, Lord, for these great promises. I pray, Lord, that as my brothers and sisters leave here today, they would have the gospel upon their lips. You would give them boldness and opportunity to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.